Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 11, Hearing Highlights. On April 30, 2019, in Washington, D.C., the House Committee on Rules held a historic hearing. It was the first ever hearing in Congress on Medicare for All. This episode highlights some of the major arguments that I think are likely to occur during the debate on Medicare for All. This episode will not follow the usual Medicare for All explained format. Also, the episode is only lightly edited to allow the voices of the speakers to come through. I will start with the opening statement by Representative Jim McGovern, Chairman of the House Rules Committee. So I believe this is a historic day. Uh, today, the Rules Committee is holding a hearing on the Medicare for All. And this marks the first time Congress has ever held a hearing on Medicare for All. And I want to thank, uh, again, uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, um, and Congresswoman Debbie Dingell uh, and their staffs, uh, Senator Sanders and his staff as well, um, for uh, leading this effort uh, and for all their help with this hearing. Uh, but I particularly want to thank Congresswoman Jayapal for her commitment uh, and her uh, dedication to this issue, um, and uh, we are all grateful to her. Uh, we have a talented witness panel with us today, and I have a sneaking suspicion that we will have a lively debate, um, and that's a good thing. Uh, after nearly a decade of uh, Republican Republicans talking only about how to rip health care away from people uh, when they were in charge, um, this majority is here to discuss how to expand it and how to lower costs and improve outcomes in the process. You know, I have long believed that health care is a right for all, not a privilege for the lucky few. And this Congress is putting that belief into action. That's why I voted for the Affordable Care Act, a law that gave 20 million more people access to health coverage. It banned insurance companies from discriminating against cancer patients and women and made sure that health plans actually covered essential benefits. The ACA changed lives. It saved lives. But we knew then, we knew then that it was never going to be the last stop in healthcare reform, that we were always going to have to come back and build upon those core values. And that is what today is all about. Because the work of reform isn't done. 29 million Americans are still without coverage. 44 million people have coverage that isn't there for them when they need it. And all of us deserve health care that we can afford without health insurance middlemen unnecessarily jacking up costs or deciding who gets care. Because it's still true today that for too many in America, you can go broke if you get cancer. You can lose your home if your kids get sick. That's not health care being delivered as a basic human right. That's health care that remains out of reach for too many. The Medicare for All Act would change that. The 29 million uninsured Americans in our country today would get health care. The 44 million underinsured people would have the peace of mind to file, of, of finally knowing that their health care will be there for them when they need it. And all of us, all of us, workers, seniors, students, all of us will be free from crushing out-of-pocket costs. Importantly, this bill would also guarantee for the first time that people living with disabilities have access to services they need to live with dignity. The Medicare for All Act is a serious proposal. That's why more than 100 members of Congress are co-sponsors. That includes me, and it includes some others on this panel. 
not only does it deserve to be part of the discussion as we consider ways to expand this and strengthen uh, coverage, it deserves to move forward. And so I hope today is just the start. So Congress should be uh, a place where we tackle big things, uh, where we're not afraid to have hearings and real debates. Uh, I know we won't pass this bill overnight, but we won't pass it unless we start, unless we start the dialogue. Now, this Democratic majority was built by Americans tired of political leaders who tried to sabotage their health care and who looked after the wealthy and well-connected at the expense of everyone else. The American people in the last election spoke loudly and clearly. They wanted a Congress that works to expand coverage. They are sick and tired of the problems that are fundamental in our system today. So if my, so if my Republican friends want to use a lot of scary words like government takeover and socialism today, have at it. Um, they tried that during the passage of Medicare. They tried that during the passage of Social Security. They tried that during the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And every time the American people saw through it and supported uh, those programs. So this would be no different. And by now, we all know that the Republican plan for health care can be summed up in one word, repeal, no replacement. Um, to the extent that they had a health care plan, um, I think it could probably be summarized as take two tax breaks and call me in the morning. Uh, they didn't hold a single hearing on their repeal plan last Congress, not one. Well, this majority is taking a different route. We have fantastic witnesses who will talk about this bill today. Some are for, some are somewhere in the middle, and some are against. Uh, but I want to focus on one witness. Um, with us today is Adi Barkin. And Adi is a father and a husband. Uh, out of, and, and out of circumstance, a healthcare advocate. And I think we all have a, a we have a picture of Adi's beautiful family uh, here uh, today. And um, and um, I'm sure your son is incredibly proud of you uh, being here at the first ever Medicare for All hearing. So we are we are so honored that you are here. Um, if you recognize Adi's name, it's because he's been fighting like hell for his life uh, and uh, for all of ours. And Adi was diagnosed with ALS in the fall of 2016. Since then, he has battled insurance companies, drug companies, medical device companies. Uh, you name it, Adi has battled it just to get the care that he needs. And I say battle because that's exactly what he has had to do. Battle to get care, battle to get services, battle to get life-sustaining medical equipment. But no one should have to fight a healthcare company while they're fighting for their lives. I can't do Adi's story justice. I will let him tell it. Um, but I will leave my colleagues with this. If you think healthcare in America is just fine today, if you think we only need to nibble at the edges of reform, look at Adi after what he's gone through and try to tell him that. Of course, Adi, you are welcome to stay here as long as you want and um, and take as any breaks that you want. We are just honored that you are here. Uh, you literally put your life on the line to travel here from California, and we are fortunate to be able to hear your story. Let me just close with this. Um, you know, in, in, in Washington here, we talk a lot about national security. That's everybody's favorite topic. Um, and, um, and I believe we need to expand the definition of national security to include more than just the number of bombs that we have. Uh, national security should also mean things like quality health care for every person in this country. You know, we expect the federal government to defend us against enemies abroad. Uh, I don't think it's too much to expect, expect the federal government to protect us against illnesses here at home. Next up is the ranking member of the Rules Committee, Republican Representative Tom Cole. Note that most of the statements made by Representative Cole are inaccurate or misleading. 
Uh, today's hearing, Mr. Chairman, is quite extraordinary. Uh, we're here today to consider H.R. 1384, the Medicare for All Act of 2019. Unlike our usual weekly hearings, today's hearing is an original jurisdiction legislative hearing covering a bill over which the Rules Committee has some original jurisdiction. I say some because out of the 120 pages of bill text, the Rules Committee has jurisdiction over precisely one of those pages. That's it, just one page. Yet we're about to hold our first original jurisdiction legislative hearing in nearly three years on this bill. That's what makes this hearing extraordinary. I also think it's worth noting that Speaker Pelosi's personal committee is the one to take the first swing at this ball, when three other committees in the House can claim wider jurisdiction than rules. Energy and Commerce, Ways and Means, and Education and Labor could and should all conduct multiple hearings on this legislation as well. And frankly, I'm sure ranking Republican members of those committees will uh, be requesting their chairs to take up uh, this legislation in, in the relevant committees, and I hope that happens. Of course, there's a reason it's coming to rules first, and that's because this bill, too, is an extraordinary bill. Democrats are proposing to, what Democrats are proposing today would completely change America's health care system, and not, in my view, for the better. Medicare for all would require all Americans to pay more in taxes, wait longer for care, and receive potentially worse care. Even worse, it would put our current Medicare recipients at risk. As Medicare is structured now, current Medicare recipients and Medicare Advantage plan holders are by and large satisfied with the health care they receive. In particular, Medicare Advantage plans are extremely popular. However, this radical bill puts Medicare itself at risk by enrolling millions of new recipients who have not paid into the program in the same way current recipients have. It would reduce the quality of services and force longer wait times and ban Medicare Advantage uh, entirely. For current Medicare recipients, Medicare for all really means Medicare for none. Uh, indeed, this bill is a socialist proposal that threatens freedom of choice and would allow Washington to impose one-size-fits-all plans on the American people. Private health insurance would be completely banned. Everyone. Every man, woman, and child in America with private, employer-based, or union-based health insurance would lose their plan. Even if you like your plan, you really can't keep it. More than 150 million people will lose health plans they like, plans that they bargained for, and in many cases, plans that they've earned through years of hard work. Medicare for All throws it all out the window in favor of a one-size-fits-all government-run health plan. In the midst of all this, I think the majority needs to be honest about the phenomenal cost of this new program. We're going to hear from Dr. Charles uh, Blayhouse, that, uh, a former public uh, trustee for Social Security and Medicare. He reviewed Medicare for All for the uh, Mercatus Center and authored a very telling study on the topic. Dr. Blayhouse's work uh, showed the previous, uh, more basic version of Medicare for All would cost at least $32 trillion over the next two years. And frankly, the version in front of us would cost more than that. The majority has not told us how much uh, this massive new program will cost, how they will raise the money to pay for it, or whose taxes will have to go up to pay for it. On the last concern, I can assure you that the answer is everyone. Everyone's taxes will have to more than double to pay for this program. The majority needs to be honest with us and with the American people about the cost. Beyond this, I'd like to point out one of the most egregious provisions of the Democratic Health Bill, 
uh, health care bill is that it relates to the federal funding of abortion. As many know, the federal funding of abortion has been limited for well over three decades by several legislative provisions. The Hyde Amendment limits taxpayer funding of abortion. The Weldon Amendment prohibits states from discriminating against providers that do not support abortion. The Church Amendment protects the conscience rights of health uh, practitioners. And even Obamacare maintains limited conscience protections. However, this bill contains none of them. It requires coverage of comprehensive reproductive care, quote, unquote, which includes elective abortions paid for with taxpayer dollars. Section 701 of the bill explicitly states that this bill must ignore these federal laws dating back 33 years. Mr. Chairman, I would hope that uh, you are encouraging your leaders to pursue hearings and markups within the committees that have primary jurisdiction over the majority of health care issues, energy and commerce, and ways and means. Uh, so that we can ensure that long-standing life protections are included as you move Medicare for All to the floor for a vote. Mr. Chairman, I'm looking forward to today's hearing. hope our witnesses can shed some light on these and other questions as we review this proposal that, if passed into law, would dramatically change the American health care system for absolutely everyone, and in my opinion, not for the better. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. In spite of what Representative Cole said, Medicare for All would provide better and more comprehensive care to seniors and everyone else. The next speaker is Addie Barkin. As stated, Mr. Barkin traveled from his home in California and put his life at risk to testify. His courage and dedication are an inspiration. Chairman McGovern and members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to testify today. My name is Addie Barkin. I am 35 years old and I live in Santa Barbara, California with my brilliant wife Rachel and our beautiful toddler Carl. She is an English professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara and I am an organizer at the Center for Popular Democracy and the Be a Hero Project. I earned my bachelor's degree from Columbia University with a major in economics and my law degree from Yale Law School. For 20 years, since I was a freshman on my high school debate team, I have been giving speeches and presentations on topics like health care reform and the federal budget. But never before have I given a speech without my natural voice. Never before have I had to rely on a synthetic voice to lay out my arguments, convey my most passionately held beliefs, tell the details of my personal story. Three years ago, Rachel and I felt like we had reached the mountaintop. We had fulfilling careers, a wonderful community of friends and family, and a smiling, chubby infant boy. We could see decades of happiness stretching out before us. The sun was shining and there was not a cloud in sight. And then, out of the clear blue sky, we were struck by lightning. ALS. A mysterious neurological disease with no cure and no good treatment. A life expectancy of three to four years. Most of its victims are in their fifties and sixties. I was thirty-two. Every month since my diagnosis, my motor neurons have died out, my muscles have disintegrated, and I have become increasingly paralyzed. I am speaking to you through this computer because my diaphragm and tongue are simply not up to the task. Although my story is tragic, it is not unique. Indeed, in many ways, it is not so rare. Jennifer Epps Addison, the president of my organization, is sitting next to me. Like me, 
Her husband was struck at a young age by a neurological disease. Multiple sclerosis. 10% of Americans have a serious disability. Every family is eventually confronted with serious illness or accidents. On the day we are born and on the day we die, and on so many days in between, all of us need medical care. And yet in this country, the wealthiest in the history of human civilization, we do not have an effective or fair or rational system for delivering that care. I will not belabor the point, because you and your constituents are well aware of the problems. High costs, bad outcomes, mind-boggling bureaucracy, racial disparities, bankruptcies, geographic inequities, and obscene profiteering. The ugly truth is this. Health care is not treated as a human right in the United States of America. This fact is outrageous. And it is far past time that we change it. Say it loud for the people in the back. Health care is a human right. For my family, although we have comparatively good private health insurance, ALS now means paying out of pocket for almost 24-hour home care. This costs us $9,000 every month. The alternative is for me to go on Medicare and move into a nursing home, away from my wife and my son. So we are cobbling together the money from friends and family and supporters all over the country. But this is an absurd way to run a healthcare system. GoFundMe is a terrible substitute for smart congressional action. Like so many others, Rachel and I have had to fight with our insurer, which has issued outrageous denials instead of covering the benefits we paid for. We have so little time left together, and yet our system forces us to waste it dealing with bills and bureaucracy. That is why I am here today, urging you to build a more rational, fair, efficient, and effective system. I am here today to urge you to enact Medicare for All. There are three simple reasons why Medicare for All is the right solution, the only solution, to what ails the American healthcare system. I will summarize them here, but I urge you to read the fantastic testimony submitted by the National Nurses United for more details. First, Medicare for All will deliver to everyone living in America the high-quality care that we deserve. The loan will provide comprehensive care, including primary and hospital care, dental, vision, reproductive, and mental health care. We will all be allowed to see the doctors and specialists we want. And, crucially, the program will provide for long-term services and supports that will allow people like me to stay in our homes and communities with the people we love. This will dramatically improve life for the tens of millions of people whose families include older or disabled people. Second, Medicare for All will save the American people enormous sums of money. Under the program, there will be no premiums, no deductibles, and no copays. That means that we will no longer need to choose between paying the rent and filling a prescription. It means we will no longer delay necessary care until it is tragically late and tragically expensive. It means that we won't have to worry every year when our employer announces the new rates. It means that we can finally start to eliminate the atrocious racial and economic disparities that destroy so many lives, that rob our communities of so much dignity, that strip us all of our common humanity. Any proposal that maintains financial barriers to care, any proposal that continues to charge patients exorbitant copays, deductibles, and premiums will necessarily leave people out. 
Any proposal that maintains the for-profit health insurance system will require that some people don't get the health care they need. Without the generous support of my family and friends, this would include me. Crucially, Medicare for All is the only way to make our health care system more efficient. Over the past three years, I have seen firsthand how the current system creates absurdly wasteful cost-shifting, delays, billing disputes, rationing, and worry. Administrative waste is costing us hundreds of billions of dollars every year. Medicare for All will streamline the entire system, letting doctors and nurses focus on delivering care instead of on paperwork. As a single-payer program, Medicare for All will be able to eliminate immoral price gouging by pharmaceutical and device companies. The fundamental truth is that too many corporations make too much money off of our illnesses, and they are spending gazillions of dollars lobbying and campaigning and fighting to stop us from building something better. It is very important to emphasize the following point. These cost savings are only possible through a genuine Medicare for All system. Other proposals to increase health insurance coverage, such as those that would make Medicare compete with private insurance, would not facilitate administrative and billing savings. There are many other major benefits to Medicare for All, detailed in the written testimony submitted by the nurses and others. But my time to deliver this testimony is running out. And, in a much more profound sense, my time to deliver this message to the American people is running out as well. So I want to end on this third and final note. Our time on this earth is the most precious resource we have. A Medicare for all system will save all of us tremendous time. For doctors and nurses and providers, it will mean more time giving high quality care. And for patients and our families, it will mean less time dealing with a broken health care system and more time doing the things we love, together. Some people argue that although Medicare for All is a great idea, we need to move slowly to get there. But I needed Medicare for All yesterday. Millions of people need it today. The time to pass this law is now. Winning this reform will not be easy. The moneyed interests will do everything in their power to stop us. And yet despite these obstacles and despite the personal challenges that I face, I sit before you today a hopeful man, a hopeful husband, and a hopeful father. I am hopeful because right now, there is a mass movement of people from all over this country, rising up. Nurses, doctors, patients, caregivers, family members, we are all insisting that there is a better way to structure our society, a better way to care for one another, a better way to use our precious time together. And so my closing message is not for the members of this committee. It is for the American people. Join us in this struggle. Be a hero for your family, your communities, your country. Come give your passion and your energy and your precious time to this movement. It is a battle worth waging, and a battle worth winning. For my son Carl, for your children, and for our children's children. We have a once-in-a-generation opportunity to win what we really deserve. No more half-measures. No more health care for some. We can win Medicare for all. This is our Congress. This is our democracy. And this is our future for the making. The next speaker is an emergency medicine physician who describes the hardships caused by our current health care system. 
Uh, thank you, Chairman McGovern. Uh, thank you, Ranking Member Cole, uh, for inviting me to be here today. My name is Farzan Navi. I'm an emergency medicine doctor in New York City, and I support Medicare for All. As an ER doctor, I have the opportunity to help all sorts of people in all sorts of ways. I get to save investment bankers from heart attacks and strokes, and I get to help with uh, homeless veterans from hypothermia in the winter. And that's what I love about my job. Uh, that idea that I could help any person with any problem at any time is what attracted me to emergency medicine in the first place. But over the years, I've learned that it becomes impossible to care for someone when our medical system forces them to fear things like bankruptcy and foreclosure when they come to decide to seek medical care. Now, if you ask any ER doctor, any ER nurse, or even any ER janitor in this country, you're going to hear countless, countless stories of people who came into the hospital to seek medical care, only to walk out in the middle of the treatment, AMA. Uh, AMA stands for Against Medical Advice, and people often walk out against medical advice, often because they're concerned about the cost of their treatment. The reality for many people in this country is that seeking medical care means weighing one's health against one's wallet. He knows all the statistics. You already know that 41% of Americans have skipped a visit to the ER in the past 12 months because of cost concerns. That's easy to gloss over, but we should let that sink in. That's 41% of Americans, over two in five Americans, have skipped a visit. They felt that they needed to go to the ER, but then they decided not to go seek medical care because they were concerned about the cost of that visit. You also already know that 45% of Americans live in fear that a health event could lead to bankruptcy. But I see these numbers every day on the ground level. I have to look these patients in the eye. And I want to put some face on those numbers that you already know so well. A few weeks ago, I took care of a patient who had a short head appendicitis. I recommended a CAT scan. We discussed IV antibiotics and possibly a surgery. But a short while later, this patient flagged me down. She pulled me aside. She asked me to pull out her IV because she wanted to go home. Now, she wasn't stupid. She wasn't crazy. She didn't distrust doctors or anything. The patient just was concerned about the cost of her treatment. She did some research on her phone. Uh, she learned that in some rare cases, appendicitis can be treated with antibiotics alone. Uh, she asked me if I could give her a prescription so that she could go home. Now, you don't need to be a doctor to know that this is far, far, far from the standard of care for appendicitis. All cases of appendicitis need a hospital admission, IV antibiotics, and probably a surgery. I told her that there were way too many things that could go wrong with her plan, and I strongly advised against it. Now, she asked me about the risks, and I told her the truth. I told her about the possibility of an abscess formation, perforation of her bowels, sepsis from her infection, and even death. It's not an exaggeration. This is just the truth of what happens when you don't treat appendicitis. She sat back. She asked me for some time. She thought about it for a long while. But eventually, she flagged me back down. She decided to leave. In her own words, she said, thanks, doc. I appreciate all you've done. I really do. But I just don't know if I'm going to be able to afford this. I'm going to go take my chances. Now, in my line of work, I often have to give people really bad news. I often tell loved ones that their family members have died. I've had to tell parents that their child has died, children that their parent has died. I've had to tell spouses that their husband or wife has died. But I can tell you with complete sincerity that watching someone sick walk out of the door with something that is completely treatable right here in the richest country in the world is just as awful a feeling as any of those conversations. About one year ago, I took care of a young lady who came in for an overdose on fish antibiotics. She had a fever. She couldn't afford an ER visit, so she decided to go to the local pet store by some fish antibiotics for her symptoms. She had had a job interview coming up, and she wanted to make sure she was better for that interview. Now, of course, fish antibiotics uh, come as a packet of powder. You put them in a the fish tank so the fish can eat it. Uh, there's obviously no instructions for human consumption. She ended up overdosing by an order of magnitude. She had side effects that affected her brain and her central nervous system. She fell down a staircase while she was on that job interview, actually, and then she had to be admitted to the ICU. All of that because she felt like she couldn't afford a simple visit to the ER for a simple fever. 
21 years ago, when she was 10 years old, my fiance, who is here right now, she lost her mother because her mother decided to delay medical care for her abdominal pain until only after her stomach cancer had already spread beyond any hope for treatment. A housekeeper raising two daughters, my fiance's mother was worried about the cost of her care, and she paid for it with her life. I'm here today because my patients and my fiance deserve better than this. These stories and countless, countless, countless others are absolutely ridiculous to be taking place right here in the richest country in the world. I'm not asking for much. All I want to do is practice medicine in a world where I no longer have to watch a patient walk out of the ER without medical care that can save their life because they're worried about going bankrupt. And I never want to see another patient who thinks their best option for medical care is to go to the local pet store. To simply treat for some, someone for a problem as simple as appendicitis in 2019 or to have my human patients take human antibiotics from a human pharmacy are absolutely not radical ideas. From my perspective on the ground, the solution has to involve approaching medical care in just the same way we approach educating our children, maintaining our roads, or supporting our armed forces. All this means is treating healthcare like any other public good, creating a universal healthcare system like Medicare for All, so that when they're at their most vulnerable, my patients never have to make any consideration except simply to do what they need to do in order to get better. Once again, thank you, uh, Chairman McGovern, Ranking Member Cole, and the Rules Committee for inviting me to be here. The last speaker is Representative Jamie Raskin, who provides compelling and deeply personal reasons for supporting Medicare for All. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much. Before I begin, I wanted to submit uh, for the record a statement from Egan Kemp, who's the health care policy advocate for Public Citizen, which makes the important point that even Americans who have insurance today are facing spiraling costs and that a Medicare for All system will enable us to lower drug prices and restrain the extraordinary growth in drug prices we've been seeing. I also want to recognize the presence uh, today of the president of National Nurses United, Gene Ross, uh, who uh, is the leader of an organization that has been uh, heroically fighting uh, for uh, health care for all Americans for many decades, and I just wanted to recognize her. Mr. Chairman, thank you for calling this historic uh, hearing, which is a breakthrough in the national dialogue about health care and what we're going to do to deliver health care to all of our people. I think not since... Uh, uh, Senator Kennedy had a hearing several decades ago about health care. Have we had one that is this uh, comprehensive, this detailed, and this serious? And I want to thank colleagues on both sides of the aisle for participating. I especially uh, want to thank you, Mr. Barkin, uh, for your uh, very lucid and uh, poignant and compelling testimony today. Uh, and I wanted to start by saying that uh, nine years ago, I sat where you sit, metaphorically speaking. Um, I uh, was suffering from uh, reflux symptoms and went to the doctor who uh, recommended that I go in uh, for an endoscopy, and they said, while we're at it, why don't we have a colonoscopy? Uh, we wouldn't normally do it this early. I think I was 47 at the time. Um, but uh, let's just go ahead and do it. And when I woke up, uh, they said, well, we've got good news and bad news. Uh, the endoscopy went fine, but we found something in the colonoscopy, and uh, I had stage 3 colon cancer and um, was off to the races. And um, I did it all. I did radiation. I did chemotherapy. I had surgery twice. Um, and um, I can't imagine um, any of my fellow citizens going through uh, such a trauma, su something of such uh, an enormous 
emotional, psychological, and family strain as that and not know where they're going to get insurance. Now, I was a state senator, and I was covered by Maryland's health insurance plan. Uh, most state legislators don't make very much money. I think we were getting paid $40,000, $45,000, but we had a great health insurance plan, and I was covered, and I was able to deal with it. But it opened my eyes to the fact that this is a crisis in our country, that there are tens of millions of people who don't know what they would do in the event that they came down with a diagnosis like that. Like Mr. Barkin, I decided that I was going to try to go through this uh, personal crisis by staying at work and by engaging with the things that I loved. And one of the things I was working on was I was leading the, uh, the floor fight in Maryland for marriage equality. And uh, we adopted marriage equality. We became the first state in the union to do so without a judicial order compelling us to do so. Mr. Chairman, uh, you know, all glory to Massachusetts in all cases, but, but Massachusetts did have that judicial order from the Supreme Judicial Court telling them they had to do it. In Maryland, we didn't have that, but we, we passed it anyway. And, you know, as the floor leader, you've got the opportunity when it's all over to make a little speech. And I got up to thank my colleagues because I, I had been wearing a chemo belt to the debates into session for several weeks. The guy who sat next to me, Jim Brochin, who's a great conservative Democratic state senator from uh, Baltimore County, uh, said that I just wore the chemo belt to try to get sympathy and votes for marriage equality, which is probably right. Uh, but we ended up pulling him over and changing his mind about it. So it worked, I guess. But I, but I got up and I said, you know, that I had learned something in this process about the difference between misfortune and injustice. Because if your life is going great, you've got not one but two jobs that you love and uh, a wife that you love, and my wife is here today, and kids that you love and constituents you love, and you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you you got stage three cancer and you got a 50-50 chance of coming through it alive, that's a misfortune. It's a terrible misfortune, but it's just a misfortune because it's built into the nature of our species, you know. Um, any of us could be assigned such uh, a verdict on any particular day. Anybody could get such a diagnosis. But, but if you experience such a misfortune and you get such a diagnosis and you can't get health care, because you love the wrong person, or you lost your job, or you're not working, or you're too poor, that's not a misfortune. That's an injustice, because we can do something about that. And life is hard enough, Mr. Chairman, with all of the illness and accident and heartbreak for government to be compounding the misfortunes of life with the injustice of denying people access to health care when they get sick. And in the richest country, in the history of our species, at its richest moment, not to advance forward to adopt a Medicare for all system, um, is to deny, I think, the common humanity of our fellow citizens. And I, I read uh, an essay during that period uh, by Susan Sontag, who said that everybody's born with two passports, and one passport is to the land of the healthy and the living, and the other is to the passport of the sick and the dying. And we all hope that we're just going to use one of our passports in life, but in truth, all of us are going to use both of those passports. And to me, it is an elementary question of democratic solidarity 
and equality, whether we are willing to acknowledge that all of us are going to use those passports and we should make everybody's trip as easy as possible. So I'm a co-sponsor of this legislation. I'm not going to hide that fact. I'm not just a neutral, objective questioner here. Uh, but I am fascinated about how we're going to get through this process and bring everybody aboard and come, come up with a system that makes sense to all Americans. As the Medicare for All debate unfolds, we can expect to hear many of these arguments in the coming months. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.